Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. If you enjoy Forgotten Australia, you can help support the show by becoming a patron. It only takes a minute and costs as much as a cup of coffee or two each month. As a thank you, you'll get early episodes, original bonus podcasts, and the full-length audiobook of Australia's Sweetheart. And you'll also get a shout-out. So, a big thank you to Kate Williams, Sarah Singleton, Robert Davey, Luke Briggs, Paul Waper, and Mick Baker, who've all become supporters in the past week. For more information, go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia. All right. On with this week's show, which commemorates events that took place exactly 100 years ago. It's just before nine in the morning on Tuesday the 22nd of March 1921, and the passengers on the overnight train from Broken Hill to Adelaide are looking forward to their breakfast stop at the little South Australian town of Riverton. The train's running more than an hour late, not that anyone's complaining too much, That's because the delay was caused by a single woman giving birth in one of the carriages. A nurse was found to help her, and mother and baby were taken off the train and to a nursing home at Tarawi. When the train pulls into Riverton, 60 miles north of Adelaide, many of the 200 or so passengers make for the handsome brick station's refreshment rooms. Some people stay in their carriages, while others get out simply to stretch their legs. One man stands apart at the northern end of the Riverton platform. Short and solidly built, with dark hair and eyes, he wears an overcoat and carries a small leather satchel. With the train set to depart in five minutes, the station's busy with passengers returning to their carriages. That's when the man starts walking down the platform. From his purposeful stride, the train's guard, James Thomas, thinks the man must want to get his baggage. Next thing the guard knows, though, he's staring at an automatic 32 caliber pistol the man's holding in his right hand. 
Guard Thomas freezes. Farther along the platform, friends William Smith and William Crowhurst also see the man with the pistol, and they also freeze for a split second before trying to get in through the carriage's doorway. Turning towards them, as though attracted by the movement, the gunman opens fire. The first bullet hits William Smith in the thigh. The second catches William Crowhurst in his leg. As Smith helps Crowhurst onto the train, the gunman fires more shots into carriages where passengers duck in disbelief and into the platform crowd whose confusion turns to panic as they scramble for shelter on the train and in the station's buildings. Two women burst through the doors of the refreshment room, saying there's a man out there running amok with a gun. Among the customers is Percy Brookfield, the New South Wales state member for Sturt, which is centred on the mining town of Broken Hill. Percy, known to all as Jack, is a big man. Big in that he stands 6 feet 4 and weighs upwards of 16 stone. Big in that he's a firebrand radical socialist leader who's loved and hated in equal measure all across Australia. Jack Brookfield is not one to start a fight, but he's also not one to back down if he needs to defend himself or other people. As the gunshots continue, Jack's determined to follow the belief that's guided his political life. He's determined to take direct action. I'm Michael Adams, and this is Forgotten Australia. Comparatively little is known about Jack Brookfield's early life. One of eight surviving children born to Cuthbert and Jane, Percival Stanley Brookfield came into the world on the outskirts of Liverpool, England, on the 7th of August, 1875. His father ran a grocery business. That the Brookfields didn't have much money was suggested by the later recollection of a childhood friend who recalled young Jack went to school shoeless. At the age of 13, the shoeless schoolboy picked up and went to sea. For the next six years, Jack would sail on several ships and spend much time in Chile and Argentina. In July 1894, in Penarth in Wales, now aged 18, he signed on to his last ship, the Godiva. The vessel sailed via Cape Town to reach Melbourne on the 5th of November that year. When Godiva left on the 27th, it was without Jack, who'd requested and received a discharge. The certificate for this, which can be seen at Ancestry.com.au, was stamped VG, very good, for his conduct and his character. Jack might have been an upstanding young able seaman, but he was done with the ocean-going life. Now, the vastness of Australia beckoned. Jack spent the rest of the 1890s and the first decade of the new century as a prospecting swagman. He roamed thousands of miles across eastern Australia, ranging from Victoria through New South Wales and right up into the far north of Queensland. Of this time, he'd later say, quote, There is scarcely a place where a pennyweight of gold had been obtained where I have not prospected to a greater or lesser extent. While he hadn't got much of an education in Liverpool, during his seagoing and swagman days, Jack was a voracious reader who devoured the works of writers such as Jack London and English socialist author Robert Blatchford. Their works and his lived experience gave him a great affinity for the underdog. As for Jack's personal life, Paul Robert Adams, who's no relation to yours truly, revealed a touching detail in his wonderfully titled Brookfield biography, The Best Hated Man in Australia. In the book, he relates that around 1907, Jack was in Queensland and engaged to be married. Yet, it wasn't to be because his beloved died of pneumonia. After that, Jack, despite being popular with women, wasn't to marry. 
He went to Broken Hill around 1910 and got a job underground on BHP's Big Mine. Conditions for Jack and his co-workers were abysmal, with BHP and other mining companies doing everything possible to maximise profits and minimise unionist power. Silver miners worked six days a week, often doing double shifts. One in four of them was injured on the job annually, and 20 men were killed each year. But many, many more than that perished from respiratory illnesses, which companies continued to deny was linked to working such long hours using dry drilling methods in poorly ventilated tunnels. These conditions made Broken Hill into a hotbed of radicalism. At the end of 1908, with the expiration of an industrial agreement coming up, BHP declared it'd be reducing miners' wages by 12.5%. When the men of the Amalgamated Miners Association, the AMA, refused to accept this, BHP locked them out and brought in scab labour. The lockout lasted five months before starving miners returned to work. Though an industrial defeat, this bitter experience, along with the increasing influence of socialist ideology, led to unionists becoming more radical. In mid-1914, a royal commission into mining conditions and pay was held at the urging of the AMA. Even the Commission's tame recommendations weren't implemented. Then came the Great War, with Broken Hill severely affected as much of its output had been destined for Germany. Thousands of men were tossed out of work, and in the middle of 1915, the existing Wages and Conditions Agreement was again set to expire. Chief among the AMA's demands was a 44-hour week. What they wanted was to have Saturday afternoons off, unpaid. An extra half-day above ground, it was thought, might improve miners' health and well-being. BHP wasn't having that, though it would offer the men a miserable extra shilling a day if they accepted the status quo. The AMA refused, and the union's motto was, if you want a 44-hour week, take it, with members urged not to work the Saturday afternoon shift if they didn't want to. The impasse continued through 1915. In December, the companies declared any worker who didn't work the Saturday afternoon shift would be fired. The AMA hit back by saying if anyone was fired, all the underground men would walk off all shifts. On the 8th of January 1916, miners refused to work the afternoon shift and they were sacked. The following Tuesday, a strike committee was formed, to which Jack Brookfield was elected. In the decade leading up to this, Jack had apparently been a union member, though not particularly active or outspoken. Now, he began to discover his talent as a forceful but plain-spoken orator. Jack was incensed at how the strikers were treated by the companies, by conservative politicians and their allies in the police and the press. He and his comrades were labelled Germans, cowards and traitors. In speeches, Jack hit back by saying that it was the companies that were hindering the war effort because they were making huge profits now that metal prices had soared. While the bosses counted their millions of pounds in revenue, the men who made them this money were seeking only a few extra shillings and the right not to work on Saturday afternoons. It was a bitter strike, with one BHP goon pulling a revolver on picketers. Thankfully for him and for the miners, he didn't open fire. Prime Minister Billy Hughes feigned concern over this incident and then labelled the strikers as German sympathisers. What supposedly confirmed this claim was that the strike and pickets had led to the suspension of production at the Barrier Munitions Works, a factory that relied on mining operations for its compressed air, lighting and power. 
Opened in late 1915, the Munitions Works had been ballyhooed as being the biggest and best producer of artillery shells in the country. The factory would supposedly pump out 3,000 shells every week. Yet, in the two months it had been operating, it had produced just 2,000, every single one of which was faulty. Despite this, the Barrier Munitions Works was held up as a vital part of the war industry now sitting idle due to those Kaiser-loving miners. Despite the immense pressure put on them, including from previous Union allies at Port Pirie denouncing the strike, the AMA held fast and Jack Brookfield found his voice as a speaker and rapidly rose to become one of the Union's leading figures. In mid-February 1916, the AMA prevailed, forcing a 44-hour week guarantee from the federal government for underground workers. They'd also get an increased minimum daily wage and increased overtime. As for that supposedly vital barrier munitions works, which was now free to operate, it didn't reopen. The AMA had won a major victory, yet an even more bitter battle was on the horizon. With volunteer enlistments falling in the wake of the Gallipoli debacle and the stalemate and mass slaughter on the Western Front, Prime Minister Billy Hughes was determined that, like Great Britain, Australian men would be conscripted into military service. In May 1916, he announced that on the 28th of October that year, a referendum would be held to decide whether the government could forcibly call up Australia's eligible young men to fight and die for the empire. The AMA opposed the war and conscription because it saw the conflict as only enriching the capitalist masters through the literal blood of the working class. Though the AMA was staunchly anti-war, the most visible and vocal opponents to militarism were the Wobblies. That was the nickname given to the International Labour Union, the Industrial Workers of the World, the IWW, which had been formed in the US in 1905 and established an Australian wing two years later. On the 10th of August 1914, as patriotic fervour swept Australia, the local Wobblies staked out their opposition to the war via a graphic front page of its publication, Direct Action. The headline asked, War? What for? The full-page cartoon by Sid Nichols, who'd later go on to create Fatty Finn, was a phantasmagoria. It showed a man grabbed by his desperate wife and two children who don't want him to head off to war. Then, there he is dead his family weeping in a kitchen where the cupboards are bare. The text asked, Is this the home that Father Fortin died for? An inset showed a worker's skull funneling coins onto a table around which sat capitalists, whose labels included Krupp, Rothschild and Robberfeller. Across the bottom, the text read, War? What for? For the workers and their dependents, death, starvation, poverty and untold misery. For the capitalist class, gold, stained with the blood of millions, riotous luxury, banquets of jubilation over the graves of their dupes and slaves. War is hell. Send the capitalists to hell, and wars are impossible. While the cartoon had been drawn by Sid Nichols, responsibility for its publication rested with Tom Barker, editor of Direct Action. At the time, publishing such a work wasn't illegal, but it soon would be. In October 1914, Billy Hughes, who was then Attorney General, brought in the War Precautions Act, which included laws against speech or publications that might prejudice recruiting. Tom Barker did run afoul of this law when he produced a poster that was plastered over Sydney. It read, To arms, capitalists, parsons, politicians, landlords, newspaper editors, and other stay-at-home patriots. Your country needs you in the trenches. Workers, 
Follow your masters. For this, Tom Barker was arrested and convicted, but he was acquitted on appeal because, after all, the poster had actually encouraged the working class to enlist, just after those with more money and power did. In December 1915, Tom Barker published an even more lurid Sid Nichols cartoon in response to the federal government raising £10 million in war bonds, calling on investors to, quote, show a patriotic spirit, especially as no sacrifice is entailed, the rate of interest being far higher than in normal times. Sid Nichols' cartoon showed another corpulent capitalist drinking the blood flowing from a worker crucified on a war machine. This character, called Fat, intoxicated with fake patriotism, was saying, Long live the war, hip hip, array, fill em up again. Direct Action's commentary included this, quote, The Prime Minister, Mr Hughes, has offered another 50,000 men as a sacrifice to the modern Moloch. Politicians and their masters have always been generous with other people's lives. If this was actually believed to be prejudicial to recruiting, it's inexplicable that it took the government nearly four months to react. But they did at the end of March 1916, with Tom Barker convicted and fined £100, which was equal to a year's wages, in default of which he'd do 12 months in prison. Tom Barker appealed unsuccessfully, and by May, he was in Long Bay Jail. In Broken Hill, the AMA formed a committee to advocate for Tom Barker's release, with Jack Brookfield on the 11th of June speaking to 2,000 supporters in the town's Central Reserve. The resolution passed that day said, quote, that this mass meeting of citizens strongly protests against the unwarrantable and repeated prosecution of Tom Barker and others as an infringement of the liberty of expression, which a Labour government ought to be the last in the world to allow. Further, if the War Precautions Act is to be applied, there are plenty of sham patriots and food exploiters to employ it on. At the Domain in Sydney, an IWW leader named Donald Grant was recorded by police as supposedly saying, quote, For every day that Tom Barker's in jail, it'll cost the capitalist class £10,000. This statement would soon be used against him as evidence that he'd been involved in a series of arson attacks then occurring in Sydney. Back in Broken Hill, the AMA was steeling itself against the possibility, even the probability, that conscription would pass at the referendum. Once it did, miners would be sent to the front. The union saw this not only as a threat to their lives, but as a threat to their livelihoods, fearing that companies would import cheap foreign labour to take their jobs. At the end of July 1916, the Labour Volunteer Army was formed in Broken Hill, its 2,000 members solemnly vowing to refuse conscription even if it meant imprisonment or death. Jack Brookfield was elected president of the Labour Volunteer Army. The organisation took as its anthem the 1913 song Should I Ever Be a Soldier. This song had been written by American IWW activist Joe Hill, who in November 1915 had been executed after what was most likely a murder frame-up. One verse of his song went, quote, should I ever be a soldier, neath the red flag I would fight. Should the gun I ever shoulder, it's to crush the tyrant's might. These were fighting words for the fighting times that lay ahead. On the 4th of August 1916, Jack and his comrades got the good news. Tom Barker's sentence had been reduced and he'd been set free. To mark this victory, the LVA's leaders were going to give speeches that night in Broken Hill's main shopping precinct of Argent Street. But when Jack stood on a table and started to speak to the crowd, he was shouted down with abuse by pro-conscriptionists who then pelted him with rotten eggs. Then, this mob of so-called patriots attacked. 
Jack Brookfield gave as good as he got until he was smashed down with a brick to the back and then kicked on the ground. The bruised and bleeding Jack was helped to a chemist by his friends. While he was being seen to, the mob turned its attention to Broken Hill's IWW Hall, determined to lay waste to the Wobblies HQ. Jack rushed out to help defend the building and hold back the crowd. In the chaos, he was punched and punched back, leaving half a dozen or more of his assailants the worse for wear. Broken Hill's constables hadn't intervened in either attack, and when they belatedly took action, it was to arrest Jack and several of his mates. In court, Jack was given a £5 bond by the proconscriptionist magistrate, even though a policeman testified that the accused had been helping to push back the crowd and had acted in self-defence. The very unfairness of this punishment only served to help boost Jack's profile and widen support for the Vote No movement. In the weeks that followed, the Labour Volunteer Army held numerous anti-conscription rallies, their huge numbers offering safety against pro-conscriptionist thugs. Guest speakers at these events included the IWW's Donald Grant and Tom Barker. At a rally on the 10th of September, before suffragette Adela Pankhurst took the stage, Jack Brookfield delivered a speech that included this, quote, Why should Billy Hughes, the traitor, have the power to foist conscription on us, the thing, the animal, the miserable little skunk? He's a traitor and a viper. For these words, Jack was charged, fined £5 and given a 12-month, £50 good behaviour bond, this so-called justice again doled out by the pro-conscription magistrate. On the day of the hearing, Jack and two comrades facing similar minor charges were supported by 1,000 people gathered outside the court. Despite this being a peaceful gathering, Broken Hill's constabulary charged the crowd with batons, brutalising dozens of men and women. On the 23rd of September 1916, 12 members of the IWW, including Donald Grant, were arrested for treason felony in relation to that series of Sydney fires which had seen businesses and factories burnt down. Jack Brookfield, along with many leftists, believed that these charges were frame-up jobs carried out by politically motivated police seeking to discredit the anti-conscription movement. While the treason charges were dropped against the Sydney 12, they were replaced with three conspiracy charges. Conspiracy to commit arson, conspiracy to procure the unlawful release of Tom Barker, and conspiracy to incite sedition. Seven of the 12 were convicted on all three charges and sentenced to 15 years. Four of the men got a decade behind bars, with the remaining man getting five years in jail. Donald Grant's conviction, he claimed, had only been based on what he'd said in the domain. For every day that Tom Barker's in jail, it'll cost the capitalist class £10,000. As he put it, he'd be serving 15 years for 15 words. Jack Brookfield, along with other supporters, would from that point advocate tirelessly to secure the release of the Sydney 12. While the majority of Australians were not sympathetic to the Wobblies' cause, they also didn't support conscription, and this was made plain when, on the 28th of October 1916, Australia voted no, by a majority of 72,480 votes. In Broken Hill, though, the no vote was more than twice that of those voting yes. On the 2nd of December 1916, Jack and four of his comrades refused to pay fines from earlier convictions they believed were unjust. Instead, they'd all serve one month behind bars. And again, this raised Jack's profile as a man of principle who wouldn't bow before injustice. 
Jack was released on New Year's Day 1917 and two weeks later began his campaign as political Labor League candidate for the Sturt by-election. The official paperwork had to be lodged in his given name and, much to the amusement of those who knew him as Jack, it was revealed his name was actually Percival. Jack's policy platform included the release of the Sydney 12. He also wanted compensation and support for injured and sick miners and for mining companies to use a tiny part of their profits to fund hospitals for workers. Though Jack remained firmly against the war, he supported the soldiers more than many politicians who'd sent them to the front. What Jack wanted was for the government to provide financial and other assistance for returned diggers, thousands of whom were coming home wounded and shell-shocked only to find they'd been forgotten. Giving a speech upon being selected as the Political Labour League's candidate, Jack was asked if he'd take the oath of allegiance. He replied, quote, Why should I not be prepared to take that oath? The questioner evidently knows the stand I take. I respect no country and no flag. The only flag I will ever fight for is the red flag of the working class. Regarding the oath you have to sign to protect this country and the king, Judge Bevan told me in the court some time ago, when they said, God save the queen, at the opening of the court, they really meant, God save the country. The country, to my way of thinking, means the working class, as in my mind, they are the only people of any consequence. Yes, bottom dog, every time. This statement was used against Jack by his political opponents who claimed he was a member of the IWW, that building-burning bunch of traitors. For the record, Jack Brookfield wasn't, and he said he never would be. Despite the IWW slanders, on the 3rd of February 1917, Percival Stanley Brookfield won the Sturt by-election with 54.5% of the vote. Jack Boy sailor, swagman prospector, underground miner, union firebrand and, just a month ago, political prisoner, was now a New South Wales state parliamentarian. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Almost as soon as Jack had won office, the member for Sturt had to start campaigning all over again as a general election had been called for the 24th of March. Jack won again with an increased majority of 57%. The day after the election in Broken Hill, Jack gave a speech at the Central Reserve in which he said the only flag he'd fight for was the red flag and he wouldn't spill a drop of blood for the Union Jack. The political Labour League demanded that he retract the statement or face expulsion from the party. Jack wouldn't retract, nor would he apologise. However, he did try to provide an accurate account of what he'd actually said in another speech a few days later in South Broken Hill. Quote, I said, speaking in the Central Reserve on Sunday last, that every man and every woman who joined a union joined it for the purpose of getting better conditions of working, shorter hours, and getting more money. I said that when they joined a union, they were fighting under the red flag, which denotes progress. I said I would not spill one drop of my blood for any flag, the Union Jack included, in any war, while millions of people were starving and while a few profiteers were allowed to make money out of that war. 
Jack refused to resign from the political Labour League and the party, which needed him, back down for now. But Jack would face court yet again for the red flag speech and for other speeches supposedly prejudicial to recruiting. As a parliamentarian, Jack now lived in Sydney, often speaking at the Domain, with police constables in the audience scribbling down what they heard, or thought they heard, to be used against him in proceedings. Jack also faced physical threats. On one occasion, he was ambushed and beaten by five returned soldiers. Another time, a man pulled a gun on him, though Jack was able to convince this fellow to go to a pub so they could talk out their differences over a beer. In August 1917, and over the next few months, Jack was a leading figure in the Great Strike, which saw 100,000 workers in New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia walk off their jobs in a dispute that was initially triggered by a new time and motion system designed to strictly monitor employee productivity and weed out those deemed not to be working hard enough. Despite huge rallies, with up to 150,000 people attending those in Sydney, the strike ended in failure, due in large part to the federal and state governments organising massive volunteer armies of strike breakers. Emboldened, Prime Minister Billy Hughes in November 1917 announced a second conscription plebiscite would be held on the 20th of December. Jack was again a leader of the No Movement, which again prevailed, the vote against conscription doubling its margin across Australia. This time in Broken Hill, the no vote carried the day by more than three to one. Given what Jack had to say when he spoke to the masses, it's easy to imagine that this imposing figure was a man seething with personal anger who inflamed hatred in his political opponents. Yet, this wasn't the case. Parliamentarians and pressmen who met him were invariably won over on a personal level for his warm, gentle nature and good sense of humour. Conservative politicians who couldn't stand his ideology nevertheless had to concede he was absolutely sincere in his beliefs and possessed of remarkable courage for standing up for his principles in the face of widespread vitriol. Reporters who were sent to chat with Jack for the first time could be relied on to begin their articles noting he was nothing like the man they'd imagined. Though the miners had won a 44-hour week, working conditions remained abysmal. An October 1918 medical investigation found that 80% of them had chronic pulmonary disease in some form, and many others were afflicted with lead poisoning. With the war finally over, the AMA was in a better position to push for a better deal without being called German sympathisers. Predictably, the big mining companies pushed back, and this led to the big strike of 1919-1920. The diary of a miner named Jack Cogan, published at labourhistory.org.au, sets out the workers' worries and demands in the lead-up to this strike. Quote, Let me tell you that conditions in the mines in those days were appalling, many men being killed or maimed because of unsafe mining practices and stricken by lead poisoning and dusted lungs and sent to an early grave. Between 1910 and 1919, there were 141 men killed in the mines. The mines were real hellholes, I can tell you. The temperature underground can reach 110 degrees. What the miners wanted now was to work six hours a day, five days a week. They also wanted a minimum wage of one pound a day, the end of the night shift, the abolition of the contract system which encouraged men to run risks to their health in order to get more money, and adequate compensation for miners injured or suffering industrial diseases. The big strike began on the 20th of May 1919, right as Spanish flu's second wave was about to sweep New South Wales and leave Broken Hill effectively cut off from the rest of the state. In Sydney, Jack Brookfield contracted the Spanish flu, and he'd be fighting its effects as he fought other battles. 
One of these was against the deportation of Paul Freeman, a German-American miner and labour activist who'd lived in Australia for much of the past decade. Jack had actually met Paul Freeman first in Chile around 1890 when they were both working as young sailors. They'd been reunited on the mines at Broken Hill and Paul Freeman was for a time a member of the Labour Volunteer Army before decamping and joining the IWW. In January 1919, Paul Freeman was arrested in Queensland and, classed as an undesirable alien, he was deported to America on the ship Sonoma. But the US refused him entry and so he was sent back to Sydney on the Sonoma, where he was denied entry and sent back to the US, who sent him back down under. At the end of May, Paul Freeman, trapped on the ship now for four months, began a hunger strike, with Jack and other leftist Australian politicians and union leaders organising large protests. A stalemate was reached when waterside workers refused to work on the Sonoma until Paul Freeman was allowed entry into Australia. On the 4th of June, a crowd of 5,000 protested at Circular Quay, where Sonoma was birthed. Showing the same sort of form as their Broken Hill colleagues, Sydney police launched a baton charge, with Jack Brookfield that day saving a newspaper reporter and a fellow politician from being bashed. For his trouble, Jack suffered a broken rib, which would later require an operation. The campaign for Paul Freeman's entry into Australia was successful, at least temporarily, though he'd be deported later that year, this time for good. The big strike continued. While it was in its third month, Jack resigned from the Parliamentary Labor Caucus and was then expelled from the party itself. He was now an independent. On the 20th of March 1920, New South Wales voters went to the polls. Labor won 43 seats. The Nationalist and Progressive parties won 28 and 15 respectively, for a total of 43 seats. It was a hung parliament. To take power, the competing parties would need Jack Brookfield's support. And he caused a scandal when he alleged that the Nationalist Party had tried to bribe him to support them. Broken Hill's union newspaper, the Barrier Daily Truth, reported, quote, Brookfield was not directly offered the speakership, but the Nationalist Party sent for him and made him an offer that his financial difficulties would be overcome for several years. Also, they would find him a good position in return for his vote in their favour. Instead, Jack gave his support to Labour so that John Story could form government. His price? A six-hour day for the Broken Hill Miners and action be taken to free the Sydney 12. A Royal Commission into the Sydney 12's cases was announced in mid-June 1920. While Justice Norman Ewing was not to find there had been any police frame-up, he did find that six of the men had been convicted on false evidence. He found that another four were guilty but had served sufficient time. So these ten men were set free. The other two would be released the following year. At celebrations for the Sydney 12 at the Town Hall on the 6th of August, Jack Brookfield gave the first speech. His advocacy had helped see that justice was done. Jack's advocacy for the men of the big strike also helped them to a big win. After 18 months, in November 1920, the miners won a 35-hour week. But it was something of a pyrrhic victory. By late 1920, the metals market had slumped and a Port Pirie smelter fire meant the mines were slow in coming back online. Many men would remain out of work. So it was that the New South Wales government established a select committee to inquire into the decline of the metalliferous mining industry in the state. As one of the committee members, Jack would travel to Broken Hill in mid-March. 
With the railway yet to connect Sydney directly to the Silver City, this was a circuitous journey by steamer to Melbourne and then to Adelaide for a train north and then east to Broken Hill. Once his committee work was done, Jack was due to make the return journey on Friday the 18th of March. But he decided to stay on for St Patrick's Day celebrations, which were being held on that hard-won Saturday afternoon and into the evening. On the night of Monday the 21st of March, Jack boarded the Adelaide Express for the first leg of that long trip back to Sydney. At nine the next morning, he was in the Riverton Railway Refreshment Room having breakfast with Martin Quigley, who worked as an ambulance attendant at Broken Hills Central Mine. About ten minutes after the train had arrived, shots rang out. William Smith, a 32-year-old motor garage owner, and William Crowhurst, a 50-year-old farmer and father of 12, both took a bullet in the leg. As is often the case, in the confusion, fear and panic that ensued, what witnesses were to say depended on who they were and where they were when the bullets started flying. Among the duties of South Australian country police was to meet passenger trains arriving in their towns. So, on the morning of the 22nd, Riverton Mounted Constable Robert Woodhead was on the platform to see the Adelaide Express come in. His accounts, first to the newspapers, then to inquests, contained significant variations. What was consistent was that, contrary to regulations, Constable Woodhead was in plain clothes rather than in his uniform. Carrying a gun was optional for country police, and on this day, Constable Woodhead had elected not to carry his revolver. Had a uniformed armed officer been on the platform, Australian history may have been very different. In his accounts, Constable Woodhead said he saw the man who'd do the shooting step off the train in the company of two or three other fellows. Then, shots were fired. Constable Woodhead said he saw two men hit and stagger. Now the gunman shot at him, but the bullet missed. Another shot hit metal on the train line. The shooter then ran up the platform with Constable Woodhead in pursuit. The gunman turned and fired at him two or three more times. Each of these shots missed and Constable Woodhead hid behind a picket fence. The gunman seemed to lose interest in the constable and instead fired seven more shots down the platform. The next victim appears to have been William George, a 66-year-old draper from Western Australia who'd been visiting his son in Broken Hill. Like the other men, he was shot in the leg. Jack Sly, a train guard who was travelling as a passenger that day, was on the platform when the shooting started. What he said he saw was the gunman pump two bullets into the carriage in which he'd been riding, and then two more into the next carriage along. Quote, A dog scampered along the platform, and I thought he was shooting at it, but when a bullet whizzed between my legs and another passed under one of my wings and a third whistled past my head, I came to the conclusion he was shooting at me, and I ducked. Jack Sly said his wife was sitting in a carriage next to a Mrs. Rice, a 57-year-old widow who was on her way to Adelaide to have an eye operation. A bullet hit Mrs. Rice in the breast, and she fell towards Mrs. Sly, who caught the woman in her arms. Some witnesses said that a plucky young passenger picked up stones and threw them at the gunman. In one account, the shooter ignored him. In another account, he took a shot point-blank and missed. And in other accounts, witnesses didn't see this stone thrower at all. What everybody agreed was that the platform was soon empty. Anyone who stepped out of the station buildings or a carriage was immediately fired on. Every time the gunman seemed to be out of bullets, he'd go to a leather satchel he'd set down at the far end of the platform and reload. 
In lieu of human targets, the shooter, reported by most witnesses to be muttering and by one to be hissing, fired bullets into train carriages where people laid on the floor and into the station master's office where railway workers huddled behind locked doors and closed windows. A message was sent to Mounted Constable Lawrence at Riverton Police Station and various locals ran to their homes to fetch rifles. In the refreshment rooms, either Jack Brookfield or Martin Quigley asked if anyone had a gun. As it turned out, one of the customers was another policeman. This was Constable Edmund Kinsella, a New South Wales officer who'd been based at Broken Hill and was now in plain clothes on his way to a new posting at Culcan. Constable Kinsella told Jack and Martin that he had a revolver in his suitcase on the train. He went out onto the platform, seeing the shooter reloading his pistol in a paddock at the north end of the station. The gunman started firing again. Constable Kinsella raced to the train carriage and got his revolver, which held five bullets. A frightened passenger said, let him have it. Constable Kinsella ran from the carriage towards the shooter. In Martin Quigley's version of events, he and Jack were at this point out of the refreshment room and following the retreating gunman along the platform. They were met by Constable Kinsella. The three saw that the gunman was now reloading his pistol again in the paddock. Martin Quigley said, there's a nice target, and Constable Kinsella opened fire. Three bullets missed, and the last two were misfires. Now defenceless, Constable Kinsella, Jack, and Martin were fired at by the gunman as they raced back along the platform. Jack and Martin dashed into the refreshment room. Constable Kinsella ran through a carriage, hoping he could use it as cover and get behind the shooter. But the station master had given the emergency order for the train to pull out to safety. As it did, the gunman fired into carriages, apparently aiming low in the hope of hitting people who were keeping down. Bullets also whizzed into the engine room and into a carriage door a clerk was trying to close. The train got to safety 500 yards away, but this had left Constable Kinsella out in the open, and he ducked into some bushes as the gunman fired at him again. Constable Kinsella then ran back to the refreshment room, hoping that someone there would have more bullets. The manager said she did, but they were at home, and there was no way she was running out to get them. At this point, Jack was at the refreshment room door, looking up the platform. Constable Kinsella joined him, and this policeman would tell the Register newspaper, quote, one bullet almost hit Mr. Brookfield as it passed between us through the entrance. Mr. Brookfield said, that was close, and just then another bullet whizzed through the doorway. Two more shots were fired. I remarked that our only chance was to wait until he emptied his weapon and then rush him. Mr. Brookfield said, give me that revolver and let me have a go at him. I said, it is no good. There are two live cartridges, but they won't go off. He answered, give it to me and we'll go for him with it. With that, we set out. The shooter was now off the platform, fiddling with his pistol, apparently reloading. Jack Brookfield jumped down and the man turned. He saw Jack holding the revolver and closing in on him. There was a volley of shots. With this distraction, Constable Kinsella rushed the shooter, knocking the revolver from his hand. They struggled. The man got free. Constable Kinsella grabbed him again and punched him in the face. Other civilians closed in, with one of them smashing the gunman in the head with the butt of a rifle. Enraged witnesses rounded on the shooter, getting in hits and kicks and demanding that he be lynched, then and there. Constable Woodhead and another Riverton policeman who'd arrived on the scene, along with some civilians, protected the shooter from this vigilante justice. Looking around, Constable Kinsella saw that Jack Brookfield was propped up on the ground. He said, I'm done, I'm done. The constable asked, are you hurt? 
Jack Brookfield replied, Yes, I'm done. He shot me. Jack Brookfield had taken two 32 caliber bullets in the upper right side of his abdomen. Another bullet had grazed his foot. He was in a lot of pain and losing a lot of blood. Jack was loaded into the guard's van along with four other victims whose injuries weren't considered serious. Mrs. Rice had had a remarkable escape because that bullet had merely grazed her breast. When Constable Kinsella inspected his revolver, he found it now contained five spent cartridges. Somehow Jack had managed to fire those last two bullets, but sadly, he'd missed his target. The train rushed for Adelaide. Knowing that he'd likely die, Jack made a verbal will, the witnesses including Jack Sly and Constable Kinsella. He left what little he had to his beloved sister Hetty, who still lived in Liverpool and who he'd hoped to visit. Jack Sly asked the bleeding man, quote, why did you want to take that risk? Jack Brookfield replied, I took it for the women, not for myself. I am nothing. Jack Sly would tell the newspapers, quote, Poor Brookfield suffered terrible pain and bled considerably. He moaned much on the way to the hospital, and more than once said, For God's sake, give me something to ease my pain. I think the doctor did give him morphia. When we got out of the train, poor old Purse said, Don't go away, you come with me. At the hospital, he inquired, He didn't hurt my toes too much, did he? He wasn't too much of a shot if he could not hit those big feet, Jack Sly continued. Mr. Brookfield throughout showed wonderful spirit and bore up remarkably. I don't think it would have been possible to meet a better man. Outside of his politics, with which many could not agree, it was a pleasure for anyone to meet him. He was one of the most kindly disposed men that it would be possible to think of. He met a rotten fate, and I hope that, although his condition is very serious indeed, he will pull through all right. Constable Kinsella would say, quote, we both went out, so to speak, with our lives in our hands, and I can thank Mr. Brookfield that I am now living. He played a very heroic part. He said that the shooter had, quote, naturally concerned himself most with the man who had the revolver. Back in Riverton, Mounted Constable Woodhead and his police colleagues had taken the bruised and battered shooter to the lockup. The shooter's name was Korman Tumayev, a 36-year-old Russian who spoke little English. But Constable Woodhead was to say the accused man had said to him, quote, I am sorry I shot Mr. Brookfield. You were lucky. I had six or seven shots at you. I am not sorry I shot the other people. Corman Tomeyev was born on the 1st of August 1884 and entered Australia on the 1st of June 1914. We know this because under the War Precautions Act, he'd had to register as an alien in October 1916 with this record now held at the National Archives of Australia. At the time of this registration, he was living in Boolaroo near Newcastle and gave his occupation as a labourer. According to a Russian friend who was interviewed by a reporter for the Barrier Minor newspaper, Tumayev had most recently come to Broken Hill from Western Australia about six months ago and worked for a time on the Central Mine. But he'd lived in Broken Hill before that and he'd also been employed on the roads in South Australia. Other reports claimed that he was also a correspondent for a newspaper back in Petrograd. Until last night, Tumayev had boarded in a house in Iodide Street in Broken Hill, along with two other Russian men. Though he apparently didn't have much to do with them, they'd all had a verbal quarrel last week. And also last week, a woman Tumayev had been friendly with had died suddenly. Researcher and writer John Wilson, author of the book The Riesling Railway, believes that this woman was named Madge Cuey and that she was a sex worker and Tumayev had been her pimp. 
While John Wilson says this is inspired guesswork based on his archival research, he believes Madge Curie's death was what sent Tumayev over the edge. What was reported at the time was that Tumayev's landlady said he'd been despondent over the woman's death and over his unemployment and had abruptly decided to leave Broken Hill. So yesterday, still under restrictions as an alien, he told police he was moving to Clare in South Australia where he hoped to get work picking grapes. Witnesses who'd shared Tomeyev's second-class carriage said he'd been quiet and unremarkable, if a little morose-looking. Offered something to read, he'd refused. Same went when someone asked if he'd like a drink. At some point during the journey, according to Jack Sly, who'd been in that carriage, Tomeyev had been staring at a young returned soldier. When the digger asked, what are you looking at, he'd replied, nothing, nothing, confirming what those who'd noticed him suspected, that he was a foreigner of some sort. Tomeyev had fired about 40 shots during his rampage. Again, reports vary, but he had between 30 and 45 more bullets in his bag. Likely, he would have done a lot more damage if not for Jack Brookfield's heroic action. Why had Corman Tomeyev shot Jack Brookfield? Had this been an attempted political assassination? When the Barrier Miner's representative inspected the rooms in which the Russians lived in that house in Broken Hill, it seemed the men were politically aligned with Jack Brookfield. Quote, On the wall of one of these bedrooms was a red streamer, bearing the words, Long live the Federated Industrial Social Republic of Russia. Above this streamer were photos of prominent Russians, including Trotsky and Lenin. The photos of the 12 IWW members who were convicted in Sydney were also displayed. Politics didn't seem to explain the rampage. From all accounts, Tomeyev had been shooting at random, and Jack Brookfield had been grievously wounded only because he'd put himself in the firing line. Adelaide's The Journal reported, quote, A woman stated that he had been gambling on the train and had lost a considerable sum of money. It is suggested that seeing some of the men whom he believed to have fleeced him, he decided to shoot them and, having opened fire, went mad and continued the fusillade indiscriminately for about half an hour. But this wasn't corroborated or even hinted at by any other witness. With blood flowing down his face and his hair matted, Corman Tomeyev was questioned by Constable Woodhead but shook his head often to say he could not understand. What the officer apparently gleaned was that he hadn't been able to sleep for fear that people were going to kill him. He'd bought the pistol to protect himself against these seemingly imaginary threats. Within three hours of the shootings, Adelaide's The Register newspaper had a reporter and photographer at Riverton. They were there to see Tomeyev taken in handcuffs into the police court, getting a remarkable picture of the bloodied and bruised accused. In court, Tomeyev presented calmly. He didn't say anything as Constable Woodhead testified against him. But when Sub-Inspector Burt, acting for the Crown, asked the accused if he understood, Tomeyev blurted out, quote, Yes, I shoot everybody because I am afraid of two men. Eight men in train, two knives, poison. They wanted to kill me in train. They shoot me. I shoot any man I see because they wanted to kill me. Inspector Burt interrupted to say that Tomeyev would get a chance later to make a full statement. Tomeyev persisted, using his hands to demonstrate, quote, They catch hold my arms and bumped me under the chin. Putting a fist to his own jaw, he continued, In the carriage, men tried kill me. Seven men tried kill me. Every time I see man, I shoot him. People who'd been in the carriage denied that any such thing had happened. Jack Brookfield was admitted to Adelaide Hospital around noon. 
he was examined by Dr. Kavanagh Mainwaring, who ordered emergency surgery to remove the bullets and stop the bleeding. This operation appears to have taken several hours. Meanwhile, the other wounded people were also seen to. None was in a serious condition, though William Crowhurst would need to undergo an operation on his leg. At 3.21, a telegram reached Broken Hill from Adelaide to say that the town's hero, Jack Brookfield, was in critical condition. At 5.45, a second telegram arrived, bearing the terrible news that Jack had died 15 minutes earlier. Both bullets had punctured his liver and a kidney, causing massive unstoppable bleeding. That evening in Riverton, hundreds of people came out to watch Jack Brookfield's accused killer be taken onto the train for Adelaide by Constable Woodhead. After reaching the city and on their way to Adelaide Jail, the Russian allegedly told this police officer, quote, You know forget to tell judge I get £100 to shoot Brookfield. New South Wales's acting premier, James Dooley, paid tribute to Jack Brookfield. Quote, the news of the death of Mr Brookfield will bring the tear of sorrow to the eyes of thousands of Australians tonight. Not the least sincere will be the tears of his political opponents, for he was possessed of a personality which made friends of those who had made up their minds to dislike him. He was perhaps the most outstanding figure of the New South Wales Legislative Assembly. He contributed short, pertinent and telling speeches. His one aim in life was to improve the lot of the toiling masses. By his death, the workers have lost a bold, fearless and earnest champion. He was the personification of sincerity and was prepared always to make any sacrifice for the realisation of his ideals. Personally, he was popular. He was a big man in every way. A big man physically and a man with the heart of a lion and a man filled with the milk of human kindness. He possessed a keen sense of humour combined with a remarkably good temper. He hated tyranny with a burning hatred and loved humanity with an intense love. Percy and I enjoyed a close personal friendship and the severance of that friendship I feel most poignantly. On Good Friday, the 25th of March, 1921, Broken Hill came to a standstill as thousands of mourners paid their respects during a funeral procession through the city. At the General Cemetery, a band played the Red Flag and the Labour Volunteer Army Choir sang Should I Ever Be a Soldier as men, women and children wept bitterly. The IWW's Donald Grant, who'd been set free thanks in part to Jack Brookfield's advocacy, wrote a tribute that included this. Quote, Australians rubbed their eyes and beheld an honest politician, and now this man, whose popularity was as great in Sydney as in the town he represented, this man who was during the war period the best-hated man in Australia, who was called a coward in every capitalist newspaper and damned by every hired politician of the master class, is silent in death, and the manner of his death was in complete harmony with the manner of his life. On the morning of the 31st of March, Adelaide City Coroner Dr Ramsey Smith opened the inquest at the deputation room of the education buildings. Corman Tameyev was present and not handcuffed. He sat beside a constable and listened without emotion. The testimony presented was only concerned with identifying Jack Brookfield and establishing the basics of how he died. The coroner found that Corman Tameyev had murdered Jack Brookfield and committed him to stand trial on the 19th of May. The day after the inquest, Friday the 1st of April, William Crowhurst, who'd been shot in the leg and never considered to be in serious danger, 
died of heart failure caused by a blood clot resulting from the gunshot wound. Now, Corman Tomeyev faced a second murder charge. On Wednesday the 4th of May, in an unscheduled court appearance, the accused was brought before a judge and jury. Three doctors testified that he was insane and so not fit to stand trial, with the judge then instructing the jury to find this so. There would be no trial that might have cleared up the chronology of that morning in Riverton and perhaps heard from Tomeyev in his own words why he'd gone on the rampage. Jack's supporters, and even some who'd been his political opponents, blasted the indecent haste of the case being closed in such a fashion. Imagine, they asked, what would have happened if it had been Billy Hughes who'd been shot. Jack Brookfield's death was to receive less legal scrutiny than the man had endured in life for simply exercising his right to free speech. This sudden insanity verdict also fostered conspiracy theories. These theories had it that a cover-up had been ordered because Tomeyev had committed the murder on the instructions of Jack Brookfield's enemies. In support of this, the £100 comment was viewed as evidence of a sinister plot rather than one of the ravings of a deranged man. Corman Tomeyev was sent to Ward Z of Adelaide's Parkside Mental Hospital. A fanciful 1922 Smith's Weekly article about his dark delusions was supposedly penned by someone who'd interviewed him in the asylum. The piece is light on facts and big on imagination. However, a more reliable account can be found in Tomeyev's Commonwealth Files held at the National Archives of Australia. One report here from 1927 assessed the possibility of deporting him. Quote, he is suffering from paraphrenia, a form of delusional insanity in which delusions of a persecutory nature are associated, in this particular case, with hallucinations of hearing. He believes that his life is sought by enemies and he fancies that he hears their voices calling him bad names and threatening him. Ever since his admission, he had been very well conducted. He is good-tempered and docile and, in my opinion, his good conduct will continue in the absence of definite irritation from others. Remarkably, given what we've just heard, this report immediately followed with, quote, It is believed that this man could travel on a ship without escort. In such a case, however, it is recommended that during the voyage, an occasional assurance be given that he is amongst friends and need fear no harm. Perhaps fortunately for the passengers of whichever hypothetical ship Tomeyev would be taken on for a month or so as he sailed back to Europe, this deportation recommendation was not taken up. Corman Tomeyev would remain in Z Ward, dying in 1948. On Good Friday, the 14th of April 1922, a memorial obelisk to Jack Brookfield was unveiled at his grave at Broken Hills General Cemetery. The inscription reads... He died for others. It continues. He lived the part that warms the heart and wakens manhood pride. All nature's laws confirm the cause for which a comrade died. Erected by the Workers of Australia. For more information on Percival Brookfield's remarkable life, I highly recommend you read Paul Robert Adams' 2010 biography, The Best Hated Man in Australia. This book builds on a shorter biography called Labour's Titan by Gilbert Giles Roper, which was published in 1983. For an account of the Sydney 12, check out Ian Turner's 1967 book, Sydney's Burning. And John Wilson's book, The Riesling Railway, published in 2018, can be purchased online. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia.
Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.